0: An eternal threat that any life exposes its own existence will be swiftly wiped out. This is the picture of cosmic civilization. It's the explanation for the Fermi Paradox. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. (laughs) Oh yeah, baby, Louis Xixing. I'm so glad you Uh, pronounced that. What a beautiful name. I mean, written down. I mean, and pronounced. Although we don't know if you pronounced it
1: I've not heard of uh, Louis Xixing before.
0: Now, I don't want to be ignorant, Matt. Are they from... I I don't want to be ignorant. Are they from China?
1: They are from China. The winner of the two... 2015 Sci Fi Fiction Award, the Hugo Award.
0: The Dark Forest.
1: The Dark Forest is the second part of a trilogy, the first part being the three body problem. Oh, God.
0: That's scary.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a little hmm. bit in there. Influenced by Arthur C. Clarke and George Orwell, brings in maybe some of the politics of China and America, but sets it on a more interstellar stage.
0: Well, I like the sound of it. And tell you what, if you're going to be influenced by anyone, that's not a bad yeah. duo, is it? It's not. It's not.
1: It's not a bad. Call. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I I've just started the Three Body Problem, and uh, thanks to the uh, Discord and the book club that we have in there. Um, I, I look forward to reading this award-winning fiction.
0: Wonderful stuff. Now, Matt, talking of being influenced, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Are you in any way influenced by Justin Roberts or Justin Young?
1: I don't think I could be more influenced by them. I mean, they're certainly not a three-body problem. Hell no. They're a two-body Piece of genius. Justin Roberts, Justin Young, serving at Ace Level on the podcast Patreon. Sweet vermouth. Ace Level. How do you get there? Go to uh, www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary to find out. Uh, They are total legends and their support at Ace Level has allowed us... To open up our podcast on YouTube, so from now on, each Holy episode, moly. each episode is now on YouTube, um, which actually is harder than it sounds uh, because obviously it would take forever to do it all the time. So, but no, I've managed to I've managed to automate it. it. Cost a little bit of money, but that's now. But the patrons are paying for that, and so yes, if you find YouTube a convenient way to listen to the podcast,
0: you now oh my can. God. Massive shout out to our patrons and Justin and Justin what a double legend you are i see you as matt what's the mythical creature that's half horse and half man (laughs) it's the centaur it's the centaur so yeah uh, yeah, roberts or young which half do you want to be? let us know i see you as one of those galloping through the galaxy um fixing things like you fix for us I'm sure there's a constellation like that if somewhere. If you would also like to become a uh, mythical creature in the universe, please head to our website, www.interplanetary.org.uk, for details. Matt, what's up next? What's up next? Well,
1: gosh, we've got a lot to get through, Jamie. I mean, we're, we're obviously dilly-dallying around at the edges here. But, Christ, uh, yes. there's
0: been some dallying.
1: Yes, uh, 19th of June. Uh nineteen thirty-three was the birth of Victor Ivanovich Batsilov.
0: Is it any wonder that he's his uh, his initial was a VIP? Oh yes. Well he was a VIP aboard Salyut 1,
1: where he operated the Orion One Space Observatory, becoming the Huge. first thing in the universe to operate a telescope outside of the Earth's atmosphere. God damn. So, so that's pretty cool. Imagine how cool looking through a telescope that's not all hazy due to the Earth's atmosphere. He must have that must have been mind-blowing for him. Yes, yeah. Soyuz 11 that mission was that went up to Salute 1. And unfortunately, he's not the it's not the only first. He may be the first person to die in space as well. Oh, because God. yeah, uh unfortunately the Soyuz 11 capsule had something go wrong, some faulty valve meant that it depressurized too soon, and all yeah. of the cos- cosmonauts on board perished. Um, he's not the first mm. person to, he's not the first space fatality that uh that goes to cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov, yeah, in Soyuz 1. So, well, Soyuz, it was probably, yeah, it was yeah, probably
0: one of our animals before that, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, Soyuz certainly has a lot of space history associated with it. God damn. So do you know what's happening on the 21st of June, Jamie?
0: I know what's happening because I'm rather obsessed with solar eclipses, Matt. Only visible near the equator, South Sudan, Ethiopia, uh, Yemen, Oman, Pakistan, India, Nepal, China, Taiwan and Guam.
1: That's quite rare. Annular, Annular solar eclipse. So it's not the full one. So you won't get the diamond ring, but you do get the kind of, well, the moon blocking out most of it. If you could travel to
0: any of those places to uh, to to watch, where would you go? I think I. I'd like go to, to Ethiopia. I think I'd like to visit there. I think Korea gets
1: it as well, so I would yeah. love
0: to go to South Korea. Um, That's when I landed in a plane. I told you my story about that, didn't I? When I what? accidentally, well, I I was coming back from Vietnam, and I brought back <laughs> some rice. I think it was rice wine. Was it rice wine? Um, Inside a bottle with a cobra and inside the cobra's mouth was a scorpion. I bought it in this village called Snake Village. I don't really know why I did because it's quite cruel looking back. Um, But I bought it as a funny gift for my friend and then um, on the plane on the way into South Korea to to refuel, um, I read the landing card and it said anyone caught with the following coming into the country will either get five years in a Korean jail or a (laughs) £50,000 fine. Um, And out of the five objects was uh, endangered animals and they listed them and Cobra was one of them. Uh Uh-oh. So you could say that my seven-hour stop-off inside uh, Seoul Airport was a very nerve-wracking one. But you'll be pleased to know, Matt, that um, nobody caught me and I sailed on through. Well, maybe they'll that maybe they'll listen to this podcast
1: and uh, catch up with you. Oh God, let's hope not. Let's hope not. And as you think about this, you'll have a really long day. But of course, twenty first of June is the <laughs> longest day of the year. It really <laughs> so, is. Yes, there we go. The sun is having its longest stopover this week. Great news for UK space. Jamie, this oh, week. yes. It's all building up quite nicely. So the UK ambassador, Dame Karen Pierce D-K-Pay. and the US Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Non-Proliferation, Christopher Ford, have signed a US-UK Technology Safeguards Agreement. So basically they're always a bit worried about technology drifting from one place to the other, yeah. and one side nicking each other's missile control Mm. software and stuff like that so um they've signed a little agreement which opens up the doors for u.s companies to come over to the uk and participate in space technology and space launching from the united kingdom wow there we go which is a which actually i suppose really opens up the door for someone like lockheed martin who who tweeted that they sort of really approved here. And they have a rocket that's similar to the Electron, if not the Electron. After all, uh, Lockheed Martin have a little stake in the Electron. And so the Electron could be the first rocket to take off from the UK as a result of this particular bit of, you know, as a result of this agreement. So that's, that's quite exciting. Of course, there's lots of other contenders. There's Orbex. Our personal favourite, because we got a nice invite up to the orbit factory. It's got Sky Rora, who hopefully will have an interview lined up very shortly. Uh-huh. uh Virgin Orbit, but they're gonna be they're not going to be going vertical, they're gonna be going horizontal from Cornwall. So, yes, lots of lots of um It's a good time, exciting it? thing. It's yeah, a good so, time. Uh, a little bit of caution, though, of course, Jamie. There's a still a bit of a long way to go. There's, oh, there's public a... hearings. Very long way to go. Um, yeah, public hearings for the Sutherland planning permission. Yeah. But hopefully, that's next week, so we'll know a little bit. You know, it could be the nail in the coffin there, but hopefully not. Uh, there's going to be loads more laws that need to be passed for the safe running of spaceports. But the government seem to want to go in this in this direction. Yes, and I think you know, as a as a way of getting out of this economic catastrophe. I think space definitely looks like a growth area. Get this, Jamie. Mm. UK space sector employs forty two thousand people and generates fourteen point eight billion pounds. Mother of girl. It's it's obviously a, a huge Well think important what
0: that think what that could be in the future if we tick a few of these off. Well, yes, exactly. If we if we start Huge. having launches
1: from the UK, it's going to be it's going to be really cool. It's really cool for us, of course, because we'll be able to
0: we'll be right in the thick of it. Surely, the tourism alone must be a must be a big chunk. I mean, how many people fly to Cape Canaveral every year? Just saying. Yeah, I mean it's 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 interesting because
1: the UK space sector is is really important in the world. Anyway, you've got. Um, This week, for example, RAL Space have finished installing this massive test chamber at the Harwell Space Cluster. And this Mm. was really cool. I saw this on Twitter. See, we were talking about Twitter and how awful it is. But actually, it's great for stuff like this. And and, and it was this enormous test chamber. They can put very large satellites in and pretend it's in space and make sure... It works properly, mm. so these things are expensive. Obviously, they're the size of buildings. You should see this this thing being slotted into the building. It's like the whole building is empty, and you're just taking off the walls and stuff and putting this thing in. <laughs> it's it's big. really cool. So, yeah, and the space park in Leicester has won half a million pounds towards building the Wolfson Deep Space Centre. Nice. So that, yeah, so that's all about designing new spacecraft to go into deep space. So Ooh. you know, this is. But not just any old spacecraft, sort of cheap of spacecraft. And that's um, part of the £100 million space part, Leicester. So Leicester's becoming a kind of real space hub as well as Go the on, Oxford Leicester. Harwell space cluster as well. Leicester. Yes, yeah, so if you're confused as an American, uh, it's Leicester and not Leicester. Made me smile on the tube.
0: You know the way to Leicester Square? I said, oh yes, I do, yeah. I didn't even correct her because I thought I don't want to be that guy. I think that, that's very polite of you. God knows I've got it wrong over the years in uh, in foreign
1: countries. Well, well, let's take a look at the author's name that we pronounce. Let's just just take a look at a few minutes ago. (laughs) Right, so Doctor Nigel Bannister. Hmm. I don't think he can run the mile under a four minutes. It's another Bannister, I think. Uh, he's the associate professor in the School of Physics and Astronomy, and he said, Our knowledge of the ice giants Uranus and Neptune is based on just a few hours of data. Taken as the Voyager 2 spacecraft flew past in the 1980s, carrying technology developed in the 1970s, the Wolfson Deep Space Centre will develop new technologies and methods and adapt existing ones to enable smaller,
0: lower-cost spacecraft to be used in deep space. What wow. do you think of them onions, huh? Well, I'll tell you what, he's gone up in my estimation. Get it, Matt? <laughs> Bannister.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, something about landing as well. Yeah, you could have good. that in there.
0: It's a very good space name Stairway to Heaven. I know.
1: Oh, no. oh Skyroarer, an Edinburgh based firm. Um, uh, have conducted a suborbital launch from the UK, so they're already testing their technology for vertical launch. Uh, we heard a couple of weeks ago how they'd done a, a, a static burn, and they've managed yes to do. Uh, this is the second time they've launched the Skylark Nano. Mm. We say suborbital, but it didn't actually go that high. It only reached an altitude of six kilometers. It's pretty impressive still. It's not bad, not bad. They're, what they're doing is testing the technologies for their larger rockets. They're using kerosene that they've been making from discarded plastic. So it's invi- they're trying to be environmentally friendly as well.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, as you mentioned earlier, Matt, very exciting because we're in talks with them over email at the moment, the lovely lot down at Skyrora, to get a, an interview so we can dig a bit deeper into the details. So... And
1: hopefully this will be a relationship that builds over the years until they launch Jamie into space it's, in the year 2040. It's all I'm living for. I want to talk about a, an astronomer mm. or a researcher, an astrophysicist called Nanda Ray. Cool, nice. And yes, she's a researcher at the Institute of Space Studies of Catalonia, The I-E-E-C. Nice. Uh, uh, And she's won a prize for her contribution to astrophysics. Wow. For the study of neutron stars. Now, I only saw this because a paper came out um, called A Very Young Radio Loud Magnetar. And she was one of the sort of lead authors on this. Wow. P. Esposito and N. Rea et al., She's a big shot, you know. If you want to talk about magnetars and pulsars in Spanish, Nanda Ray might just be the go-to person right
0: now. So the prize worth €50,000 aims to recognise the achievements of young researchers. Fantastic job. Well done, Nanda. We doff our hats to you. Well deserved, especially when you read this paper because, yeah, this is awesome. Matt, before you start... mm -hmm. um, I told you earlier that I was putting a quiz quiz together for my work mates. Mm. And we've got a space round, of course. Um mm-hmm. and I was going to put what is the heaviest object in the universe? Now, Matt, am I right in thinking that it is a neutron star over a black hole or You've got to be you've got
1: to be careful when you use the word heavy. I knew it wouldn't be as easy as that. No, you got to use the word massive. A material, yes. I think because you you can't get a spoonful of black hole, but you can get a spoonful of... Well, you can't really get a spoonful of neutron star. (laughs) But if you could, yes, I think a spoonful of neutron star is the the heaviest known material that we can conceive of. A spoonful
0: of of neutron makes the medicine go down.
1: (laughs) Makes the world collapse. Jamie, (laughs) I'm not sure that your question even makes
0: coherent sense. But, you know... I reckon. You, you um, tried. I reckon one of our listeners will know. Write in. Yeah. Get in touch. Magnetar yeah. Swift
1: J eighteen eighteen sixteen o seven. Oh
0: yeah, keep talking.
1: Obviously, the J for Jamie was yeah. discovered in twenty twenty March when the NASA's Neil Gerrill's Swift Observatory which is a observatory that flies out at 550 kilometres in a circular orbit around Earth, uh-huh. a, a gamma-ray burst-detecting machine, which actually has some uh, involvement from the University of Leicester, just to show oh, how important the back. space sector is in the UK. Yes, that detected a 9-millisecond hard X-ray burst and revealed this... Um, Neutron star, which turned out to be a magnetar. Now a magnetar is a, a very special type of neutron star, but I'll, I'll uh, go on to that in a second. Wow. So yes, what they did as soon as they saw this thing, they um, uh, started observing it properly and revealed that it had a spin of 1.36 seconds. So there we go, something the size of Barcelona, heavier than the sun, spinning every 1.3 seconds is That's pretty quick. incredible. It's quick. It's quick. Yeah. And uh, yes, and then they quickly asked XMM-Newton, which is a huge European X-ray observatory, and New Star, which is a NASA equivalent, they quickly uh turned their view to have a look at this object i mean that, that's incredible in itself isn't it that you're able to sort of astronomers around the world have this network where it's like stop what you're doing with the xmm newton i know that there's people have paid for time on it but this is really important so if you can skew your telescope over here because if we miss
0: it it's we're going to miss it but and, is it just coincidence that it's the size of barcelona and nanda is from catalonia well, it's it's not coincidence
1: actually. I was I was I was kind of paraphrasing Nanda herself, and I'm wow. assuming she she chose Barcelona because of her proximity to the the beautiful and great city that is Barcelona. It is incredible, such a beautiful horizon. The discovery, though, after all these observations using XMM Newton, and New Star, and and Swift. Was, uh, that this, uh, particular, um, neutron star magnetar is only 250, 240 years old, 240 wow. years old, which is obviously the youngest neutron star magnetar that they found, hmm. uh, Uh, this thing is incredibly bright and we'll get onto this in a second because it's just insane how ridiculous these things are wow what's more incredible is not only is it giving off x-rays but it's also giving off uh, a radio pulse as well which makes it unusual in the sense that not all neutron stars give off radio pulses some do and now we've got a magnetar that's also giving off radio pulses
0: that's so insane. it's a
1: little, so it's a little bit of a kind of. Well, I mean, radio is at one kind of really weak end of the light spectrum, and and gamma rays and X rays are at the very, very other end. And this object is giving it all off, you know, massive in giving like, it all off. In,
0: We've all had a dream
1: giving it all off. So Nanda Ray, she said. This object is showing us an earlier time in a magnetar's life than we've ever seen before, very shortly after its formation. (laughs) Wow. I mean, Uh, it's like you're
0: there.
1: Bear in mind, Jamie, and I like this bit. Even though this is only 240 years old, this magnetar, all this is happening 16,000 years ago. So it's not really. It's actually 16,240 years old. So... It takes sixteen thousand years for the light to get here. But the light of when this magnetar was made would have been arriving when Elizabeth Fry, the angel of prisons, was born, or when Nelson was going around winning his navy battles God, that 240 is nuts. years ago. So that's when that's that's when we'd have got the light of the formation of this. This new neutron star out there. So when, so when its parent star went supernova, not that long ago, but it's all happened no. sixteen thousand years ago because this thing is sixteen thousand light years away, which actually is pretty close. It's pretty close.
0: I love these um, stats. I like it when you say to me stuff like, "Yeah, we're we last time we were in this position in the galaxy." Uh, There were Mm. dinosaurs. I like those kind of stats, man. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's funny, isn't it, as we sort of orbit around those things. well, I mean, that's insane, isn't it? That's how long ago the dinosaurs were to me. I think that's the way it goes for that one. I just, yeah, I I find it mind-boggling. Weird, isn't it? 3,000 neutron stars is roughly the population that we know about. So uh, there's way more, but those are the ones we've discovered so far. And only
0: 10% are magnetars.
1: Yeah, Nanda says, maybe if we understand the formation story of these objects, we'll understand why there is such a huge difference between the number of magnetars we found and the total number of neutron stars. So there's a little bit of a mystery about why that is. But I need to give you some stats. I need to give you some stats about magnetars. Now we're talking. You you might be saying, what's the difference between a magnetar and a neutron star?
0: It's literally what I wake up saying every day.
1: Yeah, well, magnetars have got just these ridiculous magnetic fields. This was something that people had theorised might happen. So you've got to think of we were talking about neutron stars and how they're formed and and how like the new that you're just left with this sea of neutrons, but actually you've still got some you've still got some protons that never escaped or never absorbed an electron. So you've got this ridiculously complicated structure that's all named after bits of pasta because you've got things like n- neutron sheets that look like lasagna sheets and different different shapes of pasta like penny pasta and stuff like yeah. that as well. So this it's very, very complicated inside. And as this material swirls around because of the spinning and everything else, you get these huge magnetic fields. But because this this thing is so extreme, loads of different forces that are then acting because of the way that the because of the structure that, that increase the magnetic field of a normal neutron star, the magnetic field on Earth is roughly one gauss, right? A neutron star is normally a trillion Gauss, so that's obviously pretty horrendous. Uh, Whereas a magnetar is is way, way stronger. It's like a quadrillion times that on Earth, so 70 quadrillion times stronger than Earth's magnetic field. Show off. So (laughs) it really is. (laughs) So if you had a magnetar, like a city the size of Barcelona spinning as a magnetar out in between the Earth and the moon. As soon as you got about a thousand kilometers away from this spinning city of neutrons, the magnetic field would distort every single atom in your body. Whoa. And as essentially, all the chemistry in your body would be impossible and you would dissolve in space there we go there uh, and we
0: go. uh and,
1: and before this even happened of course the nerve signals would stop working so you wouldn't even be able to describe your approach to this to this horrendous point where you would dis- would be dissolved by getting slightly too close to this ridiculous object um so get this atoms themselves as they approach the magnetic field atoms are that are normally sort of ball-shaped, in a kind of classical sense, they would get elongated into, into cylinders. So a hydrogen atom, for example, would just become this spindle rather than a ball that's 200 times narrower than it normally is. So, you know, we were talking about football stadiums. It would be more like a tunnel now.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. A very, really long tunnel. Really? So, yeah. yeah, like the channel tunnel or something. It turns the football stadium into, into the channel tunnel because it's so strong it be and, much harder and, to play football. And this is the sentence I was talking about that I, th- I think is quite funny. So it's crazy that the magnetic field is so strong that it should actually bend space-time. Whoa. But if this was the case, quantum information would be lost due to the spin-related deviation from spherical symmetry violating relativistic causality.
0: Matt, buy me a drink first.
1: <laughs> so that actually might not be viable. So there's this. So there, this is one of those situations where the science becomes so extreme, where the, the situation is so extreme. General relativity and quantum theory are really out of step with each other. So come on, physicists, get your act together and sort out quantum sort gravity. Sit so out, can please. Work out what the hell's going on. Yeah. God, In what are you a doing magnetar so Oof. yeah d- these magnetars they don't they don't last very long because the process that sort of churns up what's known as a mag- magnetohydrodynamic dynamo <laughs> um the processes don't last very long so so magnetars probably only last about ten thousand years so that would explain you know why you Matt, only see younger I, ones I feel
0: yeah. like I need a cigarette, and I don't even smoke.
1: I think you should start smoking if you feel like
0: it, Jamie. Just do, just do what you need to do. Shall I? Shall I go out and buy twenty Benson and Edges?
1: So um, I, I do have a guest, Jamie. It's it's part two of Nicholas Booth. Now, oh my God, yes, I'm excited. You know, this is a lifetime's work. His book called The Search for Life on Mars, The Greatest Scientific Detective Story of All Time, which he has co-authored with Canadian whiz Elizabeth Howell as well. So this is a lifetime of of his journalism condensed into a, a fantastic book. Uh, really, I loved Part one, particularly his story about Feynman's dog, which was heartbreaking. So, so
0: good. (laughs) Uh, When is the when is this book out, Matt? Did you say?
1: So this book comes out on the twenty third of June in the United States, uh, but but here in England we have to wait until the sixth of August. By the looks of things. So, uh,
0: but anyway. Jelly, think, uh, Jelly, uh, Jelly! If you're listening, you need to buy us a book. Send it across. I can't wait that long.
1: <laughs> well, maybe, think, we'll pre- maybe we'll get a pre. Maybe copy we'll. If I we think ask, we'll ask get nicely, pre- I think we. If, if we ask Nick nicely, he'll send us a preprint.
0: But I tell you um, what, you need to put that date in your diaries, peeps, because it's going to be a humdinger. I, I have
1: had a lot of opportunity to read quite a lot of it, and
0: it's absolutely amazing. There's
1: so many cool things in there. Uh, yeah, he really was in the thick of things. Uh, well, as you'll hear in the, in the interview, as but anyway, ja- Jamie, a let Let's roll it. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So tell me, as you were as you were as you were going through the book, as you were right as you were going through your shoe boxes and going through the through the through through all the different things. Was there a story that you had either forgotten about or just kind of the, the, the next time you read it and were putting it in the book, you were, you just oh, thought, yeah, this is just absolute dynamite. I'd forgotten all about how, how great a story this is.
2: I, I interviewed um, the project scientist for Viking. So Viking was the big mission of the 70s. There were two landers, two orbiters, and the the aim was to prove that there was life on Mars or, or not. And the results were very ambiguous. There were two experiments that... Sort of assumed that the microbes would be like terrestrial microbes that would adapt to the Martian environment, and a third one that you know was slightly more universal, you might say. Um, and the results were the you know you hear the phrase between a rock and a hard place. The problem with the Viking results was it, it there was no conclusive proof that there was life but there was no conclusive proof that there wasn't. And that's that kind of strange place where people have have been in. So what's interesting to me is there's a post-grad in Paris called Melissa Guzman, who is involved with ExoMars, and she's recreating all the original data from 1976 with the original gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. Um which is the instrument that was used. I, the reason I know that without having to write it down is because I read all the stuff about biking as a kid. And when CSI was on telly the whole time, they used to talk about the GCMS, and I thought, I know what that is, because they landed <laughs> one on Mars. Um, yeah. And so basically, so what she's done is to take all the data that was then stored on magnetic disks and all this sort of stuff and looking through it, because in the last couple of years, there's been, the answer, or part of the answer, might be in front of our eyes, which is the fact that in 2008, the Phoenix lander discovered something called perchlorate. Um, and as one of the scientists said, yes, we had to go and look at that too, because it's a salt, it's a chlorinated salt in the surface. And it looks as though that if you heat that up in a mass spectrometer, which you use to look at the chemical entrails, um, it catches fire. So, there's this very, very bizarre possibility that the evidence might have actually been, you know, burnt before their very eyes um, in 1976. So, that kind of grabbed me by surprise. My co-author, Elizabeth, had spoken to Melissa in Paris, and we, you know, she is now recreating that through Citizen Science. And they're using the kind of technology that we now have. There's a couple of people who are doing the analysis of because they've found most of the data and they're systematically going through to see if they can recreate the steps, you know, because they know what they found but they haven't been able to recreate all the steps in between. And, what you know, it may well be that somewhere in those steps is a clue about, as to there may well have been these organic molecules that the GCMS didn't find. It Maybe be that they were there and they sort of disappeared for want of a better expression in a puff of smoke.
1: When you start doing something complicated, particularly when you're trying to do it with a robot that's millions of miles away, then it, it, it gets really difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and say it gets really difficult is the understatement.
2: I mean, one of the other things about Viking, Gil Levin, who wrote, had one of the experiments, is convinced that he discovered life because his instrument effectively tested positive. Um... But the consensus emerged. Actually, uh, no, because what you're seeing is very, very strange chemistry. Um, Now, from somebody who was asked by his school not to do A-level chemistry because it would spoil the averages of the school, (laughs) um, it's ironic that I've been (laughs) looking at this. (laughs) But what is quite interesting is that this sort of yeah, it's the, the fundamental question is at what point does fancy chemistry become biochemistry? And I don't think anybody's ever quite had quite a good handle on that. Um, and the next missions are hopefully going to fit in some of those sort of the key steps. So going back to the book, he said, shamelessly plugging his book, um, we have looked at all the various aspects of the, the, the kind of missing pieces. Because one thing that uh, I, I'm old enough to remember, the first generation of Mars explorers who talked about what they called a the Martian horror story, which was they went straight to doing biology before looking at all the mundane, boring, uninteresting stuff to most people, which is the surface chemistry, which is the mineral mapping, which is the interior distribution of blah, 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 uh, the magnetic fields and so on. And in the last 20 years, most recently with the InSight lander that's found Mars quakes. Um, finally all these kind of missing pieces are coming together to... to, So finally, as we say in the book, drum roll, the Martian horror story has ended. Because finally, all the kind of missing pieces of the bigger jigsaw are there. So you can try and understand exactly, you know, what actually was happening on Mars four billion years ago. When the magnetic field, when the magnetic core probably switched off in the sense it stopped sloshing. That's a technical term. Um, And if you don't have a magnetic field, you've not got uh protection from the sun's ionizing radiation from you know all this stuff from ultraviolet radiation particularly as well um so you finally all these sort of little little experiments and done in different bits it's like a patchwork quilt they're sort of assembling into a sort of coherent whole and these next missions that go this summer landing next february but they will hopefully start you know now we have all the the missing links it's like okay let's now zero in on these interesting questions
1: yeah i must admit whenever i read a mars story where it's um, tantalizing evidence to life and it, and it always ends with the sentence but it could just be a geological process And i always find that extremely
0: frustrating
2: <laughs> the, the biologists didn't really it's it quite an interesting story because they all sort of didn't get on particularly um and and that's not me saying that, that was said to me by, you know, lots of people um involved in the mission. That you know, the, the personal interrelationships weren't great. And one of the experimenters said, Well, I can I can explain my results by you don't need biochemistry and the person standing next to him said to a friend of mine, Well, I can explain him in terms you don't need biochemistry to explain him. <laughs> um which always made me you know, I always thought it was a good line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, it's at what point does life, be, What when, when does chemistry become biochemistry? And that's a question that, you know, fundamentally I don't think anybody knows because it's a bit like a cartoon, you know, and then the miracle happened and life emerged. And what I do think will happen with the next missions is... They are actively looking towards what they call biosignatures, which are, you know, it's not life necessarily. It's pointing you in the direction of life. So the most obvious, um, which has been in the news recently, is methane in the Martian Mm. atmosphere, um, which I'm sure you've you've seen. Um, One form of methane is produced biologically, and there's this kind of methane mystery that's that's happening because what's happened is. Curiosity on the surface at night time um, will take in the sample of Martian air, get rid of most of the stuff, and look at the the kind of trace constituents. These are, you know, a handful of molecules in trillions. So you're talking about a very very small concentration. It's seen methane in parts per. I'm trying to remember the exact numbers. Parts per million, I think it is, and they sort of seem to fluctuate and come in and. The European-Russian Trace Gas Orbiter, not the most exciting name, but that's what it's been sent to do, should be able to see the same methane, but it doesn't. Now, the the Trace Gas Orbiter instruments are most sensitive, something like 2 to 5 kilometres above the surface. Um, Curiosity is about, what, 12 feet tall, and the, the air is coming from there. So something's happening to the methane between 12 feet and two kilometres, but nobody's got an explanation of what that is. So, again, it's one of these, it seems very arcane, but it could be a fairly crucial point to try and understand the chemistry of the Martian atmosphere. Um, you know, we know enough about the physical characteristics, the physics of temperatures and all the, the basic things, but the actual chemistry of what happens in this very thin, very dusty atmosphere, and that might be part of the problem not to say problem might be the the as we know in 2018 there was this very very violent dust storm that grew globally and knocked out the um one of the rovers whose name uh, because i'm old and uh, yeah opportunity. opportunity yeah thank opportunity, you yeah. Yes. Uh, oppie um It's any time in recent years where I've seen people cry over a robot. You know, it's because people do get emotionally involved with these missions. But the atmosphere was very, very dusty, and it meant that Opportunity was failed because there was too much dust uh, on its solar panels, couldn't you know charge its batteries. But the dustiness may have something to do with um, what happens to the methane. But these are all individual little sort of you know interesting little questions. Uh, I don't think anybody knows what the answer will be. But you know, each time there's a mission, you know, and the next piece will be found, and so you know, I'm hoping by the end of the the decade, there'll be a, a slightly more coherent picture of how Mars has evolved and what's happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm assuming because I don't know anything about it, but if I was working in 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 just normal Earth geology circles. That uh, that there must be still some really exciting discoveries and and long-held theories that are overturned every single year, and and we're on the planet and people can get their hands on the rocks and take them back to laboratories. So, you know, to, the, the, the...
2: again, purely, he said again, plugging his own book. There's three schools of thought really. One is it'll be easy to find. We'll, we'll land and now we know there's organics there, so we know there's the biochemical backbone of that could have. You know, sustain life. We know there's enough of the chemical ingredients that you need to create life. So we drill in, and we should be able to find these biosignatures, which are hinting in the general direction of there might have been life. They're very, very canny, and not saying you know, it, we 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 won't. You know, no one instrument will will do this, but you know, taken all together, different instruments looking in slightly different ways, we can piece together the next. Bit that gives us the illumination of what we didn't know. The other school of thought is you need to drill deeper. And the European ExoMars mission, the Rosalind Franklin uh, rover, has got a drill that should f- f- uh, drill down for two metres. Everybody knows what two metres is now, you know, six foot. Um, so it... it people are saying, well, maybe that's the one that might find something because it's drilling deeper. And there was a paper that came out last year that said, to really look for Mars, to life on Mars, you need to dig really deep, and we are talking two kilometres. Well, as you may have followed, the mole uh, on InSight that's supposed to dig a hole, the mole has been ratty. It's not, you know, every time it, they drill, it pops mm. back up again. So, you know, I, again, we said about going to, sending humans to Mars, that might be a bit tough a lot of the technological problems that you have uh, you know, you, you you're limited by what you can can do. And this is why the third school of thought uh, is just just take the rocks, take the samples, get them in geological context get the samples where, if you know there's water through, flowed through there and you know that these are the rocks, the soft crumbly ones that wouldn't if they were blasted off the surface of Mars they wouldn't survive. We need those bring them back, land the mission in utah uh, they're talking about something like 500 grams and um, you know each gram of this stuff will be sort of grudgingly handed out to researchers all over the world and people are saying that's the moment that you need to be a, you know, it's silly trying to do you know to put in the kitchen sink on a mission that might crash you just bring the stuff back um and let's look at it in our laboratories
1: Were you reporting at the time when uh, Clinton stood on the White House lawn and uh, was talking about the life in the meteorites?
2: I was. That was the most exciting night of my reporting career because it was just so completely bizarre. Um, Yeah, it was 6 o'clock in the evening here when it it started to... There was this rumour that NASA had found something and they brought a press conference forward because there'd been a leak. And there's lots of different theories about the leak, but my favourite one um, was there was a White House aide whose name, I can't remember, but I remember his name was Dick, which has got something to do with this, because he happened to be in a hotel room with a hook, with an expensive hooker. And she phoned <laughs> the... Nat- this is, I'm not making this up, boys and girls. Um, the expensive escort phoned one of the tabloids you know the supermarket tabloids and said cuz he'd been on the phone talking to people uh, and she said they found life on neptune which I thought was great you know the, she got oh the, the wrong planet that's one of the stories that came out at the time um the other is there was a leak from the um clinton white house that came from uh, al gore's office but anyway the press conference was brought forward and it was this kind of Pearl Harbor moment, as they called it, where they kind of emerged and presented their evidence. And it was like, wow, you know, and it was a bit like a murder mystery. There was a red herring, The you know, there was a different clues. There were all sorts of things. And ever since then, I don't think, you know, I would say the jury is still out. Um, we've spoken to everybody involved with I, you know, my interviews from the time with the people here at the UK. Um, we've spoken to people in the States, and really the argument now is, yes, they found something that's quite interesting, um, because they found what were magnetite crystals, and in those days the only way you could produce magnetite crystals were through biology. Well, since then they found actually you can produce it in other ways. So the jury is still out. Um, The argument now is about magnetite, which is a, a mineral that was discovered inside this meteorite, and magnetite crystals... In 1996, the purity and the shape seen could only really be produced biologically. And that was one of the stronger arguments. Here we are nearly 25 years later, and they've um, realized that actually maybe not. And the argument now is between experts on magnetite crystals. And there aren't that many of them on this planet, but... You know, by Jiminy, when they get together, you know they really give it some because they, they, you know, the conferences that's all they argue about, and I think that in a hard way the the arguments moved on, and I don't think with that particular rock, because again, there's no context of where it may have come from, the evidence in itself is quite interesting, but it's all circumstantial um and i think you know the i think people will still it's like john dice and john and dickens the, co- the the thing that went on for generations i think people will be still arguing about this this particular meteorite um but something else will be um you know will will emerge what was significant about that was that the the meteorites were the first uh proof that there were organics on mars because there were these carbonaceous materials that are organic you know the long chains of carbon um that were discovered in these in meteorites so that yeah it came from left field and then a few years later there was this amazing announcement and all that sort of stuff that we talk about in the book and it was you know it was the moment when i was supposed to be meeting somebody and i said i'm sorry i'm going to be late it looks like they've discovered life on mars (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I started I started my very own first draft of a really bad Adam Sandler movie.
1: It, what's really weird is, is is the I I can kind of reme- I I remember it not being as earth-shattering as I would think now if someone said we found life on Mars. I would consider it like totally earth-shattering and I would be sort of looking at looking in the street expecting everyone to be walking around slightly dazed but I, I don't remember it being quite like that.
2: Because it, everybody who was involved was on holiday. Um, the press conference was brought forward, you know, and every and, you know, working then on, I was on The Times, we were all sort of looking at each other thinking, what does all this mean? Because it didn't... It, it, it again, is... With anything to do with Mars and life, It's there's, there's never, ever been anything particularly clear-cut Throughout the history of looking for life on Mars, there's always someone or somebody who's taken one or two bits of evidence and kind of extrapolated. The most obvious is Percival Lowell, um, you know, a businessman who'd made his money and decided to set up an observatory in Arizona and spent the rest of his life looking at Mars. And he was convinced he'd seen canals. Um, And in an odd way, that set the sort of public tone about the debate of life on Mars because the rest of the scientific community was horrified and nobody would treat Mars seriously because of all this nutty stuff and the crackpot things that you know people have been saying ever since. Um, and it really was with the space age that when the first missions went, it was, OK, let's see if we can find um, evidence for anything that points in the direction of life. The first mission, Mariner 4, saw a handful of craters and it was, you know, Mars was no longer red, it was dead. But then the next missions, they realised they'd actually missed all the interesting stuff just because of, you know, where the the spacecraft flew, which is one of those things that you, you know, you, uh, thank you to Isaac Newton. You can't change that. You, your spacecraft whizzes past Mars, and it's got to go at a certain point. And with the cameras that they use, then they had to kind of literally zoom in with no context around, and they just happened to photograph possibly one of the most uninteresting parts of the planet. But that's exploration. Um, in 1969, with Mariner Seven, so the next missions that went, um, one Mariner Seven flew over the boundary between the. The hinterland of the North, of the South Pole, and discovered measured ices with infrared, uh, with an infrared spectrometer, and overnight and a quick analysis, it was you know it looked like there was methane ice, and the scientist at the press conference, the next day said, well you know this this is quite interesting, you know, we don't have to emphasise, um, why that's biologically significant, and there was a sort of gasp in the newsroom, um, so the, all throughout. You know, there's been these observations, and then in that case, they looked at the data more, you know, did a proper, fuller analysis and realised, actually, that wasn't quite the case. So, it's... I don't think ever, you know, I don't think this emission will land and then there'll be something unequivocally wow. Was
1: the Clinton moment in that case? Because... I, this is what I I thought really was that Clinton moment has made everyone just slightly more cautious because I must admit I hate it when when people overemphasize the science and then a few months later have to roll back and then it and then it just makes everyone distrust it. It's like this. And uh, there's there's a, a news story we were talking about today about this discovery of a parallel universe in Antarctica. <laughs> it's like, oh come on, you know it's not going to be that, and it's just going to be a, a loose cable somewhere.
2: It, it, it's almost like with with life on Mars, people want it to happen and want it to be true. I can't think of anything else. Yeah, you know, if you said I didn't exactly lose much sleep, uh, you know, in twenty years while they searched for the Higgs boson, you know, but if you just said to me. You know, life on Mars, we, we're nearly there. It's exciting, and it's something that people can understand. Um, and what's interesting is with if these next missions go and find something that's pointing towards life, I think we, we interview the people at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the, the former reporter who's now head of media relations, because it's going to come from social media. Um, once upon a time, you know, people whispered, uh and you know journalists would pick it up from wherever whereas now you know i don't think you're going to be able to hide it i think there'll be i think the first hint that there's something interesting will be a hashtag uh, and we'll all know about it um and that's just the way that the the business has changed i mean the way that because i think the way that the, the story about life on mars has been reported is is quite interesting as well i mean you know i i was second spear carrier reserve battalion for five minutes um but there's a new generation of reporters like elizabeth my co-author who is pretty well attuned to social media and most of the announcements about missions now um i read somewhere that jpl has something like you know the 21 million people follow its social media on all platforms I mean that's a small country. I mean that's amazing to me. Um, so I think yeah, it, it's an odd one because it, it, people are interested in it. It's got this kind of romantic allure, and the reality in, inherently because the obvious thing is there is no you know there's no Martian giraffes. There are no Martian um, you know cats and dogs. So it's going to be fairly arcane of what is found, and it's really piecing it together to be able to. You know, to say, well, this is this could have led to this, and this might have led to this. That's not canals on Mars. That's not you know alien civilizations. But yeah, I think it's of itself, it's an attractive idea. But by its nature, we know it's going to be fairly arcane.
1: So, (laughs) which result do you think would be the most impactful? One that says there definitely never was life on Mars, or one that says there was definitely life on Mars. This
2: is the place where you know we prophets in the wilderness have been um, for the last forty years, and I think it will be like that. I, I do not think that some, you know, one of these missions will go and will, you know. So what? What I do think is if uh, when Perseverance lands next February, the instrument that I think. There's the quite interesting one. It's called SHERLOCK, uh, which is an acronym for a long-involved thing. But basically, it's it's a series of fancy lasers and spectrometers. And it's going to be looking for specific organics. So, in other words, it zaps a laser, signal comes back. and This is on the microscopic scale, um, uh, and you know, it's looking for the telltale signs of what... If, if you think there might be sort of organic species, you might see them. Um, what they're also doing, which I think is quite neat, is they're taking a sample of Mars back. Um, there was a piece of Mars that landed in Oman in 1999, and it's been at the Natural History Museum in London, and one of the investigators works there. So what they're doing is they're taking an, a, a, a sample that they know's come from Mars, because the chemistry's right, and you, know, you look at it, and everything about it says this came from Mars. So they can test in the lab here, so they can use it as a sort of... Ground control truth, if you like. So they fire the laser here and they get this result. They compare to what they've seen on Mars. So they can say, yes, we know that matches, so that's pretty obviously this or that. So, again, through the looking glass, um, it is like the chess game in Alice. You're looking at stuff that you've got to try and piece together and it will take a lot of meticulous analysis. But I think it will hint at organic species that, Again, narrow it down to what could have, could have you know clumped together to to, to lead you onto the role to to biochemistry. If they do find something um, in the right place that's got the right context of where it you know if it was water, if it was f- a mineral rich environment, if it was ancient enough, if it was if you could tell that it had been you know geologically blasted up from below, I think then you could conclude okay. We're, we're narrowing it down. But again, will an instrument go there and um, discover life on Mars? The jury's still out on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, would, we will sell more copies of the book if we said, yes, they will. But I think, you know, again, being realistic about it, um, I think, you know, we'll get the next generation of, of results. And I think it's also to do with the, the psychology, actually, of how scientists work, because um, they're, you know, they when the viking results came when there were no organics discovered that was game over and i think no analysis was ever really done at the time it's taken 40 years for all these other different clues so it's, it's it's the shock of the new so i think that when something's discovered perhaps in a sample that's then you know they do the fire the laser that's priority to bring back it's looked at um I you know I think we'll get the next steps um uh, that will give us the hint of what we might find and one of the interesting things is we'll have to wait to 2022 for the XMRs mission because what one of the instruments that it has which is the kind of uh European equivalent of the the Sherlock um, in very very simple terms um it's got the chance to be able to look at a property called chirality, which is left-handedness or right-handedness. Mm. And that's really interesting, because if they find proteins and they find kind of sequences of different stuff that is obviously very different from what you find on Earth, and it has these chiral properties, and the way you do that is extremely fancy chemistry, and, you know, we've spoken to, to people about this, and it's possible that, you know, if they find something like that... That would be then you know that some sort of biochemistry happened on Mars, um, but even then you know it's still not a slam dunk.
1: No, well, someone can turn around and say, "Oh no," but I've managed to have managed to find another process that does it. I mean, it just seems, it seems that you can always keep you can keep. I mean, if if there was a chance of definitively saying there's life on Mars, what happens next?
2: It takes life from being a miracle to an irreducible statistic of two. And that, to me, is what all this is about. In other words, if you go to Mars and you find life, then you can say pretty confidently that uh, there's probably a lot more chances of life in the universe. And it's that, you know, the famous Drake equation that's lots and lots of numbers, and you can then start plugging in. Because if you can say, okay, here are two planets that have undergone all this geological, uh, you know, evolution, there's been asteroid impacts, this. They've probably, over geological time, shared spit in the sense that, you know, stuff landed on Earth, stuff landed on Mars that come to. There's an argument to say that, you know, life is easier to to have formed on Earth, but it could have been sustained on Mars and what have you. It doesn't matter what's happened. It shows you that, actually, here are conditions that have allowed life to, to take hold. And I think that will be... I'd like to think it was a you know important and significant moment in world history, but you know nobody knows, but what it does prove is that then life you know you find life in the most obvious and likely place, then you can say, okay, it's probably pretty likely there's life all around the universe
1: if if there is current life on Mars as in there is living organisms that are currently living on Mars do you think that that has an even greater impact? And, and I'm thinking of not just the kind of, like you said, this psychological element of how, how, po- how common is life in the universe, but also in terms of its impact on space exploration full stop.
2: I mean, that suddenly then takes it into a different uh, arena that none of us know. As we've been writing the book, we could only realistically predict what would happen to this November because we don't know who the next American president's going to be. So here we're talking about something that might, could possibly have happened. So this isn't uh, Carl Sagan. This is Jim Bowen on, you know, bullseye. Hmm. Here's a planet that you could have landed on, you know. Sort of thing. We don't know what how people will react and what the the life will be like if it's there. I think it's more likely there'll be signs of extinct life somewhere in an ancient surface somewhere that somebody will dig. But if they find, you know, if something's found with current life, it may well be that the radioactivity in the rocks and the sheltering from all the stuff on the surface that it you know you could might be able to make these things might be viable so you might be able to to bring them back to life and that is more than anything you know a really fundamental uh question of ethics is you know do, do you should we do that no i'm not hmm. equipped to answer that one thing that i do think that's going to be really interesting is you think what's happened here um in the last couple of months a virus that spread I think, you know, if something is discovered on Mars and it's possibly biological and it could be extant or whatever, there will be enough people who will be saying, whoa, you know, mm-hmm. leave it there. Um, I mean, that's the stuff of science fiction and the philosophical things, and right? I don't know. And I do think it, you, you won't know the answer to the question for probably the most part of this century. But if it's... Th- let me put it this way. If it's there, it will be found. If it's, if it's it If it was, you know around enough to be able to do that i think people will have will have discovered it
1: yeah i mean the the, the, the biomass that's that's buried deep in the earth is 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 apparently more and more surprising every year I, that's that's something i was reading about this morning actually in nature about just how how the the yeah the the Deep underground is much more full of life than anyone thought. So we could it could be the same with Mars, couldn't it? What's well, also the...
2: interesting with in the last forty years, um, biologists have found life in really really odd places. I mean, inside nuclear reactors, you know, in the kind of uh, the most high. Uh, ionizing radiation environment you could imagine they found it in uh, the stromatolites which are these odd sort of chemical almost like biosignatures that at least go back to three and a half billion and people have said we think we found them in 3.8 billion in in greenland which is just the, the basic precursors and the, the, the first signs of life for want of a better expression so Yeah, I mean it's a great question because there's so many unknowns, and you know if you say okay, well we take all this, it could be that Mars is full of life, or could have been, or it's been completely dead, and either way, it tells you something important. But I do think that life is hardier than a lot of people thought 40 years ago, and I do think if it ever got started on Mars, then it will, you know, the signs will still be around and I think you know that that that's a very I think that you could answer that question to say wow okay let's what do we do next um and I, you know that's that's up to everybody to pitch in with their penis worth
1: <laughs> i mean I've, there's even the sort of extra philosophical element to it as as if you discovered life on mars and you were able to show either of these two possibilities one that there's a panspermia going on that either Mars seeded Earth or Earth seeded Mars, or that the life on Mars is absolutely completely separate to the life on Earth, as in it, it, it that there was a genesis moment. That, yeah, that, that I mean that, that
2: will be if 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 you can find the chirality of molecules that are you know precursors to, to biology that are in a different completely different sequence to the genetic sequence is different then you know that role of the cosmic dice has created something um, you've got the 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 curious thing uh, about the, the time scales cuz you know we know, okay, so maybe over a billion years, and some of these chemical processes take place in you know trillionths of a second, but trillions of a second over a billion years gets you to an interesting point that you could have produced something mm. but as a well-known television astronomer used to say we don't we just don't know,
1: <laughs> yeah, but that's presumably what all these spaceships and and rovers are supposed to. Let us know.
2: Well, eventually, yeah. I mean, you know, you we can argue the toss and say, well, how how many rovers do you need to be able to do this? And then if you have human beings traipsing around on the surface, um, you know, because they can't, we know that by international treaties, you can't land in the special regions, which is where there's evidence for water today. Um, because that's the big, the the other big question is the the question of water on Mars. That is the, yeah, you know, that that. I think the answer to unlocking the question about biology is to look at what the water did on Mars and where it went and how long it was there. Because there's now this sort of fairly interesting debate of was Mars ever warmer for long enough to have had a vast ocean across the Northern Hemisphere? Um, If you look at Mars, the Southern Hemisphere is all cratered and pockmarked. Um, the northern hemisphere is much flatter, and there are some very, very, you know, trackless expanses. That various people have said, well, there could have been, you know, oceans on Mars. Um, one of the people we spoke to, who the, the best, the best description I've heard of that is: some days I think it's really likely; other days I think it's very silly. I, mean, I thought it was quite a <laughs> good quote because the, the, there's two schools of thoughts that the geologists are looking for the you know from the geological evidence. You'd say there must have been. Water, or at least maybe sort of some covering of an ocean or something, the atmospheric modelers can't they can't get Mars to be wet and windy for long enough in the past, and again, it's one of these things that sounds like you know it's scientists at conferences arguing to you know reductio ad absurdums um but actually no it's it's a sort of fairly fundamental point of if there was water around for long enough on the surface. Uh, you know for many, many millions it didn't have to be billions um it life could have could have formed because the oceans on Earth have always been quite a good crucible for all sorts of you know biological activity, including the thing of hydrothermal vents, which I think is probably the clue that we need to find to see if there would have been life on, on Mars in the ancient past, in other words. You've got water, it was heated from the volcanic activity, but it's shielded from all the stuff that's happening. You need to make sure the water's of a, you know, the chemistry of the water is just so. It's the Goldilocks question. It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's not too acidic, it's not too alkaline. And that will take a systematic, you know, that's not front page news. That's 20 years of, you know, postdocs doing fairly arcane and obscure research. But at the end of it, they'll come out and say, actually, yeah, we think this happened and that gives you the clue
1: you've hinted that you had a bit of a hiatus in between like the early mars days and the and this latest and this latest book was there anything in particular that kind of dragged you into the fray as it
2: were, that's a good question actually because what made is quite interesting is i you know started on an astronomy magazine then did newspapers and then at the end of 99 um left went into the the glamorous world of television and here i am now 20 years later a broken man um but i was still interested in my and stuff you know so i'd see stuff on um you know, news or social media and think oh that's quite interesting um and i think really it was probably spirit and opportunity that had found you know that the, somebody made the, the comment once about um we've discovered water on Mars again, um, because it's been known from, you know, in the, certainly in the years of space exploration. But it was really the kind of, uh, what spirit and opportunity fund, because they were landed on completely different hemispheres of the planet. The chemistry of the surface was different, as you might expect, but there was lots of evidence for, in, in different ways um, that there was water there, and particularly hematite, which is an interesting, you can only really create hematite which is you've got mars which is you know it's it's red because it's rusty dust and you put rusty dust into water um, and you know sort of heat them over geological time and eventually one of the outcomes is you get hematite and it's quite an interesting thing to say actually that that's quite interesting because the conditions may have if, to create hematite at that level that you've seen um Maybe the climate was warmer. So I think there's enough clues have been amassed over the last 20 years, um, and certainly when after Curiosity landed, within a few weeks, it discovered what was obviously a stream bed, um, and there was a part of the Yellowknife Bay, as they've called it, um, that was like nowhere else on Mars had ever been seen before. And the way to explain it again is there must have been vast amounts of water around for sufficient, sufficient time to have created that. So it's, again, this narrowing down. I, again, if you what, what does make me laugh is, because I've been doing history and crime and all this exciting stuff, and occasionally on Twitter I'll post something, and a couple of people said, you know a lot about this. It's like my my secret history is that I was a, you know, marsnut in my teenage years but i do think now is a great time because there's so much going on and there are so many different areas that you can look at um it, it's you know the, the, i think we're going to hear a lot more from mars and there's going to be some fairly exciting stuff but i i, I can't tell you what that will be
1: i think yeah do just because of the age of the internet and the age of social media like you were saying about this jpl and all the people that follow that and 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 the fact that there's new and new you know new and exciting missions going, perhaps we're, we're going to see a whole new generation of Mars nuts.
2: I mean, the de- the dedication in our book is this: at the end of the book, we thank every you know the, the we thank everybody we've ever met, and we say it's our hope that somebody who reads this book will actually go to Mars. And if you do, don't forget to write, because you know we've heard that trite thing that. First person to land on Mars has been born now, and all this. And I do think that history does provide the clue that, I say, from the first era of exploration, Vasco da Gama, and all, it was 60 years, and then it was another 150 years. So maybe into the 22nd century, that's when we will become, you know, there'll be much more routine travelling around the solar system i don't think it's going to be it's not quite as easy as people have maintained it's not going to be you know there will be deaths and there will be you know horrible things that will go horribly wrong but it will be worth it because i do think you know if we can find something interesting on mars that hints at life as i say our you know chemical brothers and sisters and whatever you want to call them in the universe might be there
1: until speaking to you i hadn't really kind of Got the significance of this sample, this sample return. I suppose you, 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 that that's that's the big one that we really should be looking forward to, isn't it? Rather than thinking too far in the future.
2: That, that, I mean, this was why we stopped the book there because what's interesting is that you know, Curiosity was supposed to last. I can't remember. The, was it, two, it was two years? And I can't remember. If it was two. Martian years or two Earth years. Um and here it is eight years later. So <coughs> excuse me, as perseverance goes, it may last for another decade. So they're thinking now because the the specifics of returning the sample are have not been defined yet. Since the book's gone to press and we were able to add, you know, a sentence one of the fundamental problems is, in the same way the entry phase of landing on Mars, the seven minutes of terror, going back up through the Martian atmosphere is exactly as unpredictable because you don't know that the Martian atmosphere, although it's very thin, although it's the same pressure at 100,000 feet here, so, you know, it's, there's not much atmosphere there. It has very, very odd properties, one of which is to do with... It expands and contracts, and that's been measured at the surface by pressure sensors. Um, And you're trying to, you know, come in or take off like Buzz Lightyear. um, And it's really tough to be able to predict to do that, because then, again, in the same way, because Mars is so far away it's the average is, what, 12, 15 light minutes. So in other words, by the time it's landed, you've got to wait 15 minutes for the signal to tell you it's arrived. Well, it's the same going back up through the Martian atmosphere. Um, that whole process of getting the sample, putting it inside this rocket, firing it, getting it into orbit with a kind of giant, for want of, here's another technical term, a giant mitt that catches it, that will all have to be done automatically, you know and any changes to the orbit, so this thing that's shooting up from the surface might come might appear at a completely different place that you're expecting because it's encountered high altitude winds that you don't know about, so you know as I say there's a lot of breezy hype, but actually the reality it may well be that they don't get it right the first time,
1: yeah, I mean not just might be presumably that that's a pretty pretty big risk isn't it 'cause that it's 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 not like you can really practice that kind of stuff anywhere else.
2: No, and also because the I mean, here's the interesting thing: you land on Mars, and for the first time, you've got to take the rocket that is going to fire you back up to to Mars orbit, and that means you've got to control this in a, in a thermal environment that is, you know, rockets by their very nature tend to you know when when they go, <laughs> there's a controlled explosion. You want mm. your propellants to to undergo a controlled ex- explosion not one because the temperature rises because you've missed out something um and there's an explosion you know and, and how do you keep this stuff for this length of time and what nasa have said recently they they've said it'll be a, the, the ascent vehicle will be two stages and it's probably going to be you know a solid propellant well the problem with keeping solid propellant you can't have it much below uh you know, the freezing point of water for any length of time, so you'll need to have something to keep it its thermal activity controlled, and that, and this, you know it, it, suddenly, the, the designs I've seen for these vehicles they've got, they're like topsy, they keep growing, um, there's no doubt in my mind that they'll Get it right. um You know, one of the reasons why ExoMars has been delayed is to make sure that the parachute mechanism works. And you know, they're talking about a 2026 launch of the lander that goes down, and the same one with the European, uh, the thing that will bring the sample back. And then what they've got to make sure, because that's you know the the the, the ascent through the Martian atmosphere is going to take you know quite a long time um the next stage is how do you make sure that you what they call break the chain and what that is to make sure that the bit of mars that you bring back is completely isolated from the earth's biosphere because you don't if there's you know there's a very 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 small chance that there might be something unpleasant and nasty and you don't want that being entered into the earth's atmosphere um so there's there's these sorts of, again. I don't. There's nothing that makes you think this can't. You know, they don't have to in, invent dilithium crystals or whatever it was in Star Trek. Um, but it's lots of sort of daisy chains that you've got to get each bit right. And I think they'll do it. But I'm you know if I if I was a betting man, it might be they might not do it all in one go.
1: I mean, it's super exciting. At the same time, you, you I I think when you when you know when you kind of start to get a handle about how tricky everything is it's like yeah even down to like you said just the storage of the fuel to get you back off and all those different th- choices that you have to make and all the different design no, things let's
2: it's, not it's, you know if i i wouldn't be a holiday rep for mars it's not a particularly pleasant place to to land because there's the, the radiation, the the dust, even the chemistry of the dust. I mean, one of the things from Viking uh, was there were these what they call super oxidizing um, elements in the the soil. So an astronaut lands there, you know, puts the flag down, says right, let's let's crack open the sandwiches and goes back into the vehicle they've landed in and all this stuff is on the spacesuit i mean that happened on the moon if you i talked to the Apollo astronauts some of them and they said yeah the moon smelt like cordite because there was all this stuff and it smelt like gunpowder um on mars if you take your helmet off and you're there in your spacesuit and there's these peroxides that you then inhale they will bleach your lungs really really badly so you know even so Landing on Mars in sometime this century with human beings, it's it's there's there's another iteration of all this sort of stuff. But you know, genius is where you find it. Somebody um, <clears throat> hopefully listening to this podcast will think I know how to do that, and you know, will be involved with it. And it is, as you say, really exciting. And to, you know, to to answer this without sounding like a politician, um, it's been great to be back on Mars because it's I know my interest has been ignited again because. You know, we're at this, this, this next stage of bringing the samples back and we've talked to people and they say that's really the moment, you know, orchestra swell, uh, uh, you know, end titles, that's when it's it, it takes it into overdrive. Um, and I do think over the next decade we're going to get lots of, you know, interesting results back.
1: Uh, have you got a favourite piece of space-related music that we can stick on our space playlist? And David Bowie is completely taken. Um,
2: there's a fantastic Japanese techno artist. This is 1950s radio. I'm glad you asked me that question. I understand there is a young man who is a techno artist. Um, it's called The Sushi Club. And he's a Japanese techno electronic type person who lives in Germany. And there's a track called Dino no Sekai, which I'll send you, and samples shuttle dialogue and i think it's from i think it's from hubble i think it's from when the two astronauts when kathy sullivan and bruce mccandless went into the airlock which i was at goddard for to watch is where you know and they're testing the comms and different stuff um it's a brilliant piece of music and i'll send you um because in a very very odd way that 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 has the space stuff I'll end by telling you a very, very odd story, which again is uh, you know, from the annals of space reporting. When we went out to see the launch of STS thirty-one, the launch was uh, it it had, it was supposed to go on. I think it was the tenth of April or something like that in nineteen ninety, and. Eight minutes before liftoff, one of the APU's, you know, the big power units at the back, failed. And all what was quite interesting is at the press stand, all the local photographers. So these are the guys who know all this. They started packing their equipment away because they knew that it would take ten days to recycle everything, to take all the units out and be. So ten days later, or maybe a fortnight later, I'm there. And the Kennedy Space Center is the best way I can describe it is is a series of freeways. With a lots lots of fences around it, um, and lots of armed guards and lots of marines. So we to get to be able to to get to the press stand to see the launch, is you had we had to be able to like four thirty and had to leave the motel at five o'clock, and you get there you show your credentials and all that stuff and then they let you in, and this is a very a very strange moment. Every time I hear. Um, Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins, which is not the most obvious space music, but that was on every FM station in those days. You know, when it was all analog, it wasn't digital, so you you know a station would fade in and then another, and that that opening to to that always reminds me. And still, what I think is probably the you know I've told you about one eerie thing, which was Tara Feynman's dog. The other thing, and I only thought of this recently, was when I went out to the cape to see the hubble launch so we let in we're driving along and there's all these freeways and in the middle of nowhere there's a traffic light that suddenly turns to red Um, so we pull in and then in the distance this van appears and at the back there was a there was like two motorcycle outriders and a kind of the the, the a van or sorry a lorry which marines sit in in war movies with guns and this entourage shot past and very, very slowly, it dawned on us what we'd just seen, that that's the astronaut transfer van. You know, you see them walk out, and they get in the van and they wave. And we actually saw that because we just happened to be at the right spot at the right time. And whenever I see, you know, Shuttle, that that moment of suddenly realising there are five people inside that van who in an hour and a half, are hoping that the explosion that they're sitting above will be a controlled expo- explosion. And I, at the time, it gave me goosebumps. And whenever I think about that, i am got them now. Um, but not from listening to Phil Collins. That just happens to be there. So my two space pieces of music would be Dino's... Uh, the Japanese one, which I can't pronounce, cause, uh, and Another Day in Paradise. And thank you for letting me wit it on. The Interplanetary Podcast is... Alive!
1: There we go, there we go So Excellent, it only leaves as always. One last thing to do Jamie go And on that is to thank
0: The great Patreons We've said it before We will continue to say it You make this podcast happen We couldn't do it without you Thank you for all your support And thank you for people on our Instagram page uh, You know, liking our p- Nonsense and commenting And and people mm. going onto iTunes giving us five stars and the reviews. Honestly, Matt, I read the reviews again the other day, and it warms the cockles of my heart. Absolutely, uh, to see and, and that if, people if, enjoy this. And if you if you've got great stories, we love it when people write
1: in and say that they've packed in their job and started an astronomy degree and things like that. Those things <laughs> those things are literally yeah. absolutely amazing. So please tell us your stories like that. Please, tell us I'm going to read. I'm going to read out. I'm going to read out the list, Jamie. Of the legends that let's are... Hear it. Let's Dr. Hear it. Bob Hodges. Oof. John the Adventurer
0: Benak. Oh yeah.
1: Karel Sim. Oh Julio yeah. Space Transportation God of oh, yeah. Sven Nauhaus, who is extremely good Oof. at at the old book recommendations. Oh, yeah. Ronald Hatcher. Oh. Marissa, Marissa Davis oh. Patrick Haywood oh. Mark Shun Mark, oh, Mark Modular Synth Sean, oh, Stas Mark. Shusha Christopher oh. Andreasson
0: uh-huh.
1: Rob the Architect Annabel
0: uh, Rob
1: And last but not least The Three Gods Auden Vala oh. Tupper Hyde Oh And, of course, Anthony Peggs.
0: You sounded like Tarzan, then. That was amazing. I'm hoping someone from Disney's listening. (laughs) Right, that's it, Jamie. Shall we um, let the Spodcats go? Let's let them go. Uh, Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. And... Remember, you're special, you're beautiful, and so is your solar system. So continue to look up. <laughs> continue. Yes? Goodbye, Spatcats! See you soon. Bye. Bye.